Grapefruit. curious yes yes <laughs> we are and you're in the right place so this is our second episode and I would just like to preface this episode with I'm really sorry about the first episode <laughs> <laughs> but I realized that there's a lot of things I did not do what I want what there's a lot <laughs> of things I didn't want to do the first episode mm-hmm. with my first story which is Billy Goal. And I'm going to tell you why, because my brain was not in the right place. And I thought it was nerves and anxiety, which I mean, like, come on, mm-hmm. everyday life. Yeah. But no, I don't know if you can tell by my voice, but I left Olivia's house, drove home an hour and came home with COVID. Not from me. Not from, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, if you listen to the first episode really closely, you can probably hear me maybe slowly getting sicker. And Olivia's immune system, like, just throwing hands. I know, which is weird, because usually my immune system kind of sucks, but it pulled through this time. I'm actually really impressed. I am too. I'm like, you're super lady? Super Maybe. lady. Super lady. I realized when I got back to my house, I was like, I didn't even do my source material for Billy Gull. Like, I just was like, what was wrong with me? Oh, yeah. I, I, I caught... <laughs> The actual thing that started a pandemic. So, yeah, and I, I didn't have any excuse other than it was our first time. But I feel like I kind of blacked out while I was doing my. <laughs> but I thought report. you did really good. Oh, that's good. I haven't listened to it no, yet. I'm I don't want to. To. No, I'm afraid to. No. We'll have our producer do that. I don't think I took a single breath the whole time. I think I just was like, and here we go. You were monologuing. I was. Yeah. When monologuing and radiation become one it becomes yeah. chernobyl reading i don't know i was like, i don't know <laughs> chernobyl happened because someone monologued for two yeah years. i mean i mean well kind of yeah but okay. science anyway so i am so much better i am not uh, clearly i'm not contagious because i'm here yeah we're together and i'm better and <laughs> I'm like, it's literally been 10 days. I'm like, this, this COVID thing is not messing around. It's not. No. It means business. Also, it feels like it's actually been forever since you were here and it wasn't that long. It wasn't that long. Because time doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't. No. Does anything really matter anymore? No. No. (laughs) Anyway, so without further ado, Olivia went first last time. So I would like to go first this time. Yay. Are we ready to do this? Is this ready? Yeah. Okay. I'm ready. <laughs> okay. <laughs> also, how are you? I'm good. Um, we we got some coffee earlier mm. and some pizza. I mean, not together. I guess. I mean, I yeah, guess a little you could. Bit. There was I, a there was a gap in there between. Was a little bit of a gap, but I'm hyped up, and now I'm gonna bring myself down with a white cloth. Yeah. <laughs> Just doing all the things. Right. I think my order went coffee, dayquil. <laughs> it did yeah pizza white claw 
The American Dream. Yep. <laughs> I don't think the American Dream ever touched any of us. I don't think Unless so. it was in pizza form. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I'm ready. So my story for you today, Olivia, and dear listener, hopefully listeners, I don't know, <laughs> is the Lady of the Lake. I'm so excited. Right? It's this is devastating. And it's interesting. There's a lot of science involved. Much like many true crime stories, it's also very just disheartening. So, see, I I know I've heard this story before, but for whatever reason, I don't remember any of it. So this will be brand new. This will be brand new. Yeah. And the Lady of the Lake is a term that has been used many times throughout history. It's an Arthurian legend. Mm -hmm. She was like of Avalon and... um, my Arthurian knowledge really comes from Monty Python, so she, like, give him <laughs> Excalibur. This story is not that. Okay. But um, she's still a beautiful lady who was in a beautiful lake. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and there were no swords. Oh, okay. And yeah. So my source material comes from a historylink.org article by Mavis Admonson. Um, an article from myolympicpark.com. And a morbidology.com article by Emily G. Thompson, which shout out to Morbidology. It's actually a really good podcast. I was hoping she had um, an episode on this, but she did not. But I have found really amazing episodes from her. She's very, very professional. Cool. Um, So shout out to Morbidology. So the story of the lady in the lake begins in the Olympic National Park, which is just stunning. And it's in Lake Crescent. That is our lake. Mm -hmm. Olympic National Park is massive, but Lake Crescent itself is 17 miles west of Port Angeles in Washington State. Oh, okay. I thought it was Washington. Yeah. So Port Angeles is just the cutest town. You get on a ferry to Victoria, British Columbia from there. Mm. And if you can just imagine that whole, I mean, everything beautiful, Mm -hmm. like literally there are orcas in that water just waiting to free Willy. That sounds magical. I know. (laughs) It's just beautiful. And, um, so side note, I was actually in, um, Port Angeles, not this last November, but the November before we went to Lake Crescent, actually. This is where I learned about this story. My cousins, um, took my other cousin and my best friend up to Lake Crescent and we hiked around. We went to the lodge. The lodge was just stunning. The lodge felt like if Teddy Roosevelt was a building, it would be this building. There's a, I I can picture it. Right. Yeah. Roaring fire, a beautiful elk head, which I mean like that's sad, but still a mustache. Everyone has a mustache and little glasses, (laughs) but in their gift shop, they have an actual book for, this story. And so I was reading about it and it was just, wow, this is good. This is good storytelling, but terrible story. Mm-hmm. Why? I'm like, it's like, why did this have to happen? But at least they are giving her the, anyway, I should get into it. I'm really sorry. Anyway. So we're going to start at Lake Crescent. It's July 6th, 1940. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of fishermen out this day. It's a beautiful, clean, still water day good for fishing 
Louis Rolf and his brother are out on their boat and they're just having a good time. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's 1940. They're fishing. They don't have to worry about a lot of things. Maybe Hitler. But that's far. like the 40s, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, they don't have to worry about much. Maybe a little bit. Yeah. But yeah. So they're on their boat and they notice near the shoreline an object floating close to them mm-hmm. in between them and the shore. Naturally, they approach the object because I'm I'm with them. I'm so curious. I will see anything and I'm like, what is it? I know. Me too. Right. <laughs> so they are horrified to discover it is a body of a woman. Mm-hmm. She's wearing a green dress and she's wrapped in two gray striped blankets tied together with heavy rope. Mm-hmm. So at first appearance it seems like well this body has not been in the water that long she's very well intact and a little side note about lake crescent it's the second deepest lake in washington because it's been measured over 600 feet deep but some scientists say it could have areas over a thousand feet deep which could make it possibly even the deepest lake in washington but that's not fully recorded They're like we're too scared to find out yeah <laughs> which i mean deep water and humans don't really go hand in no, hand very we're well. not meant to be there no um and this is a freshwater lake it's so blue because there's no algae in it because the water has no nitrogen which helps algae form so this is like almost like caribbean water is kind of like a light blue this is like a deep cobalt blue mm. just gorgeous mm-hmm. So this fully intact body is just going to stand out on the water. Yeah. So Lewis and his brother, clearly they don't know what to do. They rush to the dock of the Washington State Trout Hatchery. That's the closest place they can think of that could have someone of authority, which thankfully there is a superintendent on duty. His name is A.D. Immenroth. And when they tell Immenroth what they found, he's skeptical he is actually quoted saying, must be a deer, Lewis. What? Which. <laughs> how, how do you confuse a lady and a deer? He's like, hey, look, it's 1940. <laughs> we don't do everything right here. We don't know much about women. Which can you. <laughs> right. Um, I'm sure Lewis was probably a much better person than I am because I can't imagine him being like, yeah, I don't know very many deer that wear dresses, but <laughs> I don't know. Anyway probably because you just don't want to find a body in the water and you're hoping it's something else. Yeah. So nevertheless, he follows them um, to the scene and he's horrified to learn that his skepticism is unfounded. Mm -hmm. It is in fact a woman in the water. So Emin Roth contacts the uh, coroner and the sheriff and they arrive to the scene to retrieve the body. When they bring this body in, she is noted to be as white as marble. Um, her facial features are more or less not really distinguishable, mm-hmm. but she's estimated to be in her 30s. She's also estimated to be five foot six inches and roughly around 140 pounds at the time of her death because um, now she's much, much lighter. Yeah. And this is all due to her being so well preserved. Uh, and this is because. She is covered in a soap or a soap-like substance. Oh. And this is what is interesting about 
I was reading about why bodies float in water Mm -hmm. and why they decay. Fresh water actually leads to bodies to decay faster. Salt is a... Because salt preserves. Yes, yeah. Salt preserves. Fresh water, it's like, it's a breeding ground for um, either natural chemicals or natural bacteria that will interact with the bacteria already in a body, which this bacteria causes you to bloat Mm -hmm. and float. So, um, un- unfortunately, the term for a floating body is called a bloater, which is just... Yeah, that's not great. <sighs> no. Like, hey, we all get bloated sometimes. <laughs> I know, okay. but, but please, not... But after death, you're like, just give me some don't, dignity. Don't be mean, yeah. <laughs> However, so this body is covered in soap. And uh, the coroner noted, he said, quote, she could be scooped away like putty. Oh. Yeah. This process is called saponification. Mm-hmm. It means that extreme cold prevented decomposition and the salts and the calcium, which the salts, there's not very much of in this water, but it's like natural occurring salt with calcium and deep water and cold water help the tissue of a human to slowly convert into a material like soap. What? Yeah. I thought someone did that to her. Right. Yeah. Because they're thinking, why would they do this? But it's yeah. actually her own her own self did it to That's her. so weird. <laughs> um, so this process of uh, decaying matter being covered in soap is called adipocere. In order for this to happen, a body must be deprived of oxygen, which unfortunately, if you're dead, that happens. Plus, she's in water. There isn't very much oxygen. And then uh, it needs to be in an alkaline environment, which, Mm. I mean, like, so this water is this pH balanced. Uh, And then the second thing it needs, intestinal bacteria must be present, which unfortunately, humans, we have a lot of that, whether Mm -hmm. good or bad. And so this chemical reaction causes a waxy encasing to form around a body. And this is this adipocere. And in some instances, they have called them wax mummies. Oh. But this adipocere is also called corpse wax. Now, why do they have to make it? I know. (laughs) Just call it a wax mummy. I know. And corpse wax, I mean, that actually sounds like a great name for a band, to be honest. It also reminds me of House of Wax. Yes, yeah. (laughs) Which I have never seen. I don't know the story of that. Does that have anything to do with it? Maybe. I don't know. I just know Paris Hilton was in it. Yeah. (laughs) Shout out to Paris Hilton. (laughs) (laughs) But one interesting uh, factoid is, so I looked up the history of this adipocere. There's been many instances where it's been like, basically they stumbled across it because it's not really that common Mm -hmm. because the circumstances have to be just right for it to happen. Yeah. So this is just a side note, the history of what has been recorded for this. In 1786 and 1787, the Paris Cemetery of Innocence, which is the cemetery for dead children, which is mm, very sad. Kind of sad. Two Parisian scientists were supervising the exhumation of bodies, mm-hmm. these children's bodies, because they were moving them from the graveyard to the catacombs because they were running out of room, which mm. is really, really sad. Like, children, really, just leave them, but... Right. Let the little babies be. Let them rest. But the 1700s, they were they were a different time. They're like, everyone's dying. Everyone's dying. 
So they found this gray waxy substance on some of the children's remains. And it was actually kind of jarring because this waxy substance prevents decay. It's mm. like a preservation. Like, oh yeah. Like you're putting that seal on that jar of jam or whatever, mm-hmm. which I mean humans aren't jam, <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> um but because they found this, I mean they were they were curious about it, and so they have learned that this is um a body being exposed to bacteria that's anaerobic. So it's bacteria that's uh, oxygen deprived and then it's in a warm, damp, alkaline environment. So this is the first time it's been noted. And there have been many um since. I can I think there's a couple uh a soap man and a soap woman. They're on display in the Smithsonian, I believe. Oh. And they were found in Philadelphia, and they were from around the same time. And they don't really know how they happened. Mm-hmm. And I think the last I read, they were going to DNA test this couple, because they don't <gasps> know who they are. See if there's any, do. right, if there's any living relatives now, mm-hmm. like, you're related to the soap man, and at least give them a name. <laughs> you can go see them in this right. Which is really sad. Like, oh, there's my great, 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 great grandfather. <sighs> Just don't put him in water. But anyway, so... <laughs> <laughs> So this is happening, and this is very curious because this does not happen, Mm -hmm. especially from a standpoint where this is the first time someone has been found floating in this lake, Mm -hmm. plus it's a unique circumstance. So they're doing this autopsy on this body, and one of the medical students helping the coroner, he said, quote, there was no smell or decay. So this dead body does not smell, which is, that's good, which is good. <laughs> and she's intact. Mm. However, unfortunately, they are able to conclude that she has been beaten mm. or had been beaten and she was strangled to death. Oh. Following her death, she was hogtied with ropes, weighed down with rocks or bricks and thrown into this ice cold lake. Um, thankfully, however, this rope rotted away due to the environment and her saponification made her unusually light, which helped her float from the very deep depths of this lake Mm -hmm. to the surface. And the pathologist doing the autopsy, um, estimated she has been in the lake for almost three years. Oh my goodness. Yes. And she's almost fully intact. So three years, three years. That's crazy. Yeah. So, like I said, this is the first body to be found floating in Lake Crescent. Mm -hmm. The first? Yes. The first one recorded, at least. Because, I mean, I mean, who knows, right? Right. Right. Yeah. Um, But because of this, she becomes sensationally known as the Lady of the Lake. Um, Which, like I said, that's kind of, it comes from Arthurian legend. Mm -hmm. Um, It's even referenced in, like... Anna Green Gables, where yeah. she, like, she's... That's the, the Lady, Lady of Shalott. Yes, yeah. exactly. Like, it it has a real, like, romantic quality to it, which is sad, because it's like, yes, she's this woman that was found floating, but it's actually sad. I mean, she mm-hmm. was killed. You know, please don't romanticize it. Yeah. I mean, but we know how the public is. We... Yeah. yeah. And I think, really, they're not really romanticizing it in a way that is disrespectful. I think they're like, hey, we want to help her find her name we want to find who did this to her and also probably they were just 
like so shocked that they didn't know something like that could happen that they're like it must be something mystical because how could someone still look so preserved after three years right exactly and she i mean they can estimate her height and her weight Mm -hmm. she had auburn hair it was still intact so it's just like a redhead i'm like (laughs) shout out to the the redheads oh thank you (laughs) (laughs) but i won't do this to you olivia i won't put you in any water (laughs) i appreciate it yeah yeah you're like i won't even take you to the ocean (laughs) i know which i mean do you want to go there we could go there i just won't put you in the water (laughs) okay so um because of this intrigue in her uh story police had this daunting task of identifying her I mean, this is going to be hard. This is well before DNA testing. Mm-hmm. They can't, um, I mean, maybe her fingerprints could have been on file. Who knows? But this is also 1940. Yeah. And her fingerprints are gone. I mean, she may have fingers, but she's not intact completely. Mm-hmm. Um, there was um, a, a hiker from Chicago at the time who had been vacationing in Olympic National Park who had last been seen um, falling to her death. They had not found the body. They thought Mm -hmm. perhaps this was her, but she had been alone. And why would she be wrapped? And why would she be wrapped (laughs) in blank? So for a moment they were like, maybe, but then they're like, no. Yeah. Which, I mean, that poor girl who, I hope they found her body. I know, seriously. Um, So yeah, so her, I mean, first her injuries are not matching. She was strangled, so that means someone had to be at her death, Mm -hmm. be there with her. Um, her body was, um, taken to a pauper's grave nearby because they had nowhere to put her. But over the next few months, she was exhumed, you know, dug up and exhumed a few more times. In fact, 14 months went by before her identity was known. Mm -hmm. And they finally had this, the idea of, well, how else can we identify her? Oh, her teeth. Yes. Yes. Dental records. Dental records, which, I mean, that is a thing. Um, so she had a unique sixth, sixth, six tooth bridge in her mouth, mm-hmm. which I mean, gold, especially teeth, don't, teeth don't really decay because mm-hmm. I mean, it's like bone, Yeah. but gold, gold is forever. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> gold and diamonds. Are I know forever. like Elizabeth Taylor is like, what have I been telling you? <laughs> so. They took pictures of this bridge. They circulated it around. It was said they sent it to at least 5,000 dentists in the country. Wow. That's really good. Right? Yeah. yeah. Like, this is good detective work. Um, because no dentist in Washington recognized it. So they're like, okay, so she's not originally from here. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, a dentist in South Dakota recognized his handiwork. Wow. Yeah. She came quite a ways. She, she really did. And he identified this unknown woman, which she now is 38 years old, and her name is Hallie Illingworth, mm-hmm. which she was known as the waitress at the Lake Crescent Tavern. <gasps> yes. Oh, my gosh. And police were um, able to discover that Hallie was last seen on December 22nd, 1937, which it's been, you know, mm-hmm. almost three years, which... The coroner was correct with that assumption. Mm-hmm. Good job, coroner. Good job. Um, so the public is captivated by this discovery. They want to know who did this to Hallie. Mm-hmm. So 
let's learn about Hallie. Yes. And Hallie is also, I mean, I feel like they say this about every victim, beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I mean, really every victim in their own way is just because it's like, how dare you die in such a terrible way? Yeah. I, yeah. But it's also like, I don't know, I feel like it's annoying when people are like, oh, she was so beautiful. Like, that makes it even sadder somehow yes. that she died. Like, like oh, what, people who aren't, a, you know, attractive to our society cannot be beautiful because yeah anyone that dies in such a horrible manner it's like you want to give them the respect not just because of their beauty but and they're beautiful to someone oh yes exactly or or like you know that meme when they're like if if i die please don't tell them i lit up the room when i (laughs) yeah (laughs) like i was in the corner i was in the corner (laughs) i did not have a a smile that lit up the room i did not care about poetry or horses (laughs) i don't know Um, but, but actually, I mean, she was, I'll show you a picture. Okay. Um, so, so she was very pretty. Plus she has red hair. (laughs) I mean, what's more, it was Auburn, but still. It's a shade. Um, It's a shade. Um, so not much is known about Hallie's early life. She was born on January 7th, 1901, um, to Finnis and Bunny Latham. Oh my gosh. Right. Bunny. That's so cute. Right. So cute. Um, so Finnis and Bunny were humble farmers in Greenville, Kentucky. They tried to give their children the best life they could, but it was, it was humble beginnings for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so Hallie wanted to make a better life for herself. So she continually moved West to, to basically find herself mm-hmm. and, you know, find what she wanted to do in life. Um, However, at age 35 in 1936, she had already had two failed marriages. So she decided to up and move to Washington State to just start over. She found work as a barmaid at the tavern on the edge of Lake Crescent. And I can't even imagine, I mean, Olympic National Park is beautiful now, but even more untouched, it's probably Mm -hmm. just like, this is just stunning beauty. I'm sure she was probably really happy to be there. She's like, this is where I want to be. This is where I want to be. And because just like any of us, she wants to give love another try. Mm -hmm. So she married beer truck driver and unfortunate notorious ladies man, Monty Illingworth. They married in Seattle of June, the year she moved to Washington. So this was a whirlwind romance. Mm -hmm. She's like, I got a job. I got a man. I'm in a beautiful place. I'm doing great. However, no, <laughs> Monty was not a good man. Um, they argued a lot. This was mainly due to his extreme alcoholism. He was a mean drunk. That's not what you want in a beer truck driver. No. I'm like, are you drinking and driving? I'm like, please, Monty, get it together. Um, he had constant affairs, which it's just like, oh my gosh. Really? Um, so Hallie had every reason to be angry with him, Mm -hmm. but these arguments would lead towards physical altercations Mm -hmm. and he did not bother hiding his beatings. (sighs) Yeah. She would come to work with bruises, black eyes. She once confided in a coworker that, uh, Monty had choked her to the point where she almost blacked out and he had broken her teeth. Mm. So after just five months of marriage, it was 
they could count on their fingers how many times the police had been called to their house due to fights, Mm. which is just... That's so sad. Poor Hallie. So, on the morning of December 22nd, 1937, Hallie goes missing. She had gone home to her apartment after a long night at the tavern working to wait for her husband to come home. He was partying in Port Townsend, which... Port Townsend is about an hour east of Port Angeles. Um, So I'm like, okay, so he's partying and then he's driving home. Great. Mm -hmm. Um, So again, Monty's uh, reputation is preceding him. So once they find out the day she disappeared and the fact that she was waiting for her nasty drunk husband, investigators are like, okay, I'm putting the pieces together. Yeah. Too yeah. bad they didn't do that before she died. Yeah. I'm like, okay, well, who's... The problem is with when you're in that relationship, which I guess I should have done a like a trigger warning ahead of time about domestic violence and murder, but, um, you know, when you're in love with somebody, you probably are constantly trying to look for the good, mm-hmm. or, you know, you might have opportunities to walk away, but it's just, it's really hard when... You're like, well, you know, this is, I've made this decision. I, you know, I, maybe we can work through this. It's just, it's sad that this happens very often, but yeah, it's no fault of her own. No, it's I was just, right. No, police. oh, yeah. the police. Yeah, yeah. It's just like, it's no fault of her own, but it's kind of like be on the lookout for people who might need help and police. Yeah. And that's that are job. showing up to work with black eyes yeah. and like saying that they've been strangled. Yeah. <laughs> Which unfortunately, if you if you think about it a lot of times, okay, it's the late thirties. Someone might argue, well, it was a different time. Well, that should be no, no time. That should be any time where that's okay. No, no. Okay. So investigators have a, a hint of a suspect in Monty Illingworth, but he's nowhere to be found. Hmm. They finally find him living with another woman in Long Beach, California. In fact, he was married, married, not married yet. He was engaged to be married to this new woman. Her name is Eleanor Pearson. She was also from the Pacific Northwest. So they probably met maybe even while he was married to Hallie, who knows? And she was the daughter of a wealthy timber magnate. And they ran off to California together. Mm-hmm. Um, so when investigators found Monty, he was like, oh, you know, the last time I saw her, she had run off with a he said two different stories, a sailor from Alaska or a naval captain. Okay. <laughs> Which I'm like, I guess naval captain and sailor could be the same thing, but yeah, I, I don't know. He's just like, I'm just throwing stuff out there. He's like, I'm drunk. I can't remember. <laughs> I know. Here's a sailor. Um, but what's funny, Monty, is how come she never contacted her friends or family? And I guess she was very close to her siblings she had a lot of friends i mean she was quick to make friends Mm -hmm. they had not heard from her that was very suspicious and incidentally so monty filed for divorce five months after she had last been seen but he didn't even file it under desertion he filed it under incompatibility so if he was saying (laughs) that she was abandoning their marriage you would think, oh, that's the reason. But he's like, ah, she's dead. We're not compatible anymore. Yeah, so <laughs> I don't know. Weird. But I mean, I mean, again, he's claiming he's innocent. So, but either way, either way, yeah. So there's a picture of Monty 
on the internet that I think is very interesting. It kind of shows his character. He's in between two women. On his left is Eleanor, his Mm -hmm. soon-to-be wife. And on his right is his mother giving him a kiss on the cheek. And Monty looks like, (laughs) oh boy, women. Like, (laughs) who can know him? Oh, God. Yeah, so this... This is a good, um, I, we should probably share this picture on our Instagram because when he is found in Long Beach and arrested for the suspicion of her murder, he's waiting extradition in his jail cell in California. His mother is there with him, visiting him. (laughs) And he said, mother, you know, I didn't do it. Oh God. And he, like, I know it was different linguistics back then, but anyone that says mother, Mother. I just think of. Buster Blues. Oh, exactly. Mother boy. I was thinking of, um, which is, this is also a bad example, um, all around, but, um, Norman Bates. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, Buster kind of turned into Norman Bates. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. So, and his mother said, I know son, which I'm like, "Mm, no, I don't think she knows. No. So in addition to all of this being fishy, they're able to trace down the rope found around Hallie. Mm. So this particular rope was um, sold at Sears and Roebuck. um, And through receipts, they're able to find that it's the tavern owner who bought this rope. Mm. So keep that in mind. So they have this information in their back pocket. And Monty is uh, extradited from California. He stands trial for Hallie's murder. He claims that body isn't Hallie's because he's like, how can you tell? <laughs> because of her face, mm-hmm. which it's like, okay, well, her hair, um, dental records, her dental records, yeah. which they did have the dentist um, on the stand, which was like, okay, good. Um, so the dentist is testifying towards her identification. Um, the prosecutor brings up the topic of abuse during the trial. Mm-hmm. And Monty did confess that it was the norm for him to get into a physical altercation. But he said, quote, I struck Hallie. She also struck me. However, I never beat her up and I did not kill Hallie. That's still not cool. (laughs) No. Um, Which, I mean, she might have struck him because she might have just been defending herself. Yeah. And, And granted, if someone hits you first, it's, yeah, I mean... Montier and still not looking good. Um, at one point, the prosecutor asked Monty why he hated Hallie. And he said that he loved her. And he said, the prosecution asked, then why did you beat her so? Monty did not have an answer. Mm-hmm. So their theory is that Monty had strangled his wife um, on December 22nd, sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. And placed the body her body in the trunk of his sedan drove to Lake Crescent rode out into the middle of the lake and then dropped her down tied Mm -hmm. with rocks Mm -hmm. they think it's either rocks or bricks either way something heavy yeah but the real nail in this coffin of Monty's is they were able to um have so they had the tavern owner um testify on the stand about that rope Mm -hmm. and he said yes monty the beer truck driver borrowed that rope from me a hundred feet of it 
to pull his truck out of the mud. What? <laughs> and he never returned it. He probably couldn't return it because yeah. it was tied around his dead wife. Yeah. Um, which also, how tacky is it to not even get your own rope? Right? And, like, he's so stupid. Like, I'm sure he thought no one was ever going to find her. Mm-hmm. But, like, why would you even involve someone else? That's so dumb. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's well, I don't think Monty is the brightest. He doesn't sound like it. No. No. So, on March 5th, 1942, Monty is found guilty of second-degree murder, which is unfortunate because it wasn't first degree. They felt it was an act of passion. It's not premeditated. Mm-hmm. I would disagree with that only because he beat her so that I'm sure... Yeah, yeah, I feel like asking that guy, like the tavern owner for the rope, that is premeditated. Uh huh. Like, it's not like all of a sudden he had the rope and was like, oh, I'm going to strangle you, you know? Yes. Yeah, but, you know, I don't know. Who knows why they did that? Who knows why they did that? So, um, he is sentenced to life in prison. In prison. In prison. (laughs) In prison. um, In Washington State Penitentiary. So, he was sentenced to life in prison. He served nine years before being paroled. He went back to California with Eleanor, and he lived there peacefully until he died in 1975. I'm upset. I know. I'm like, hashtag justice for Hallie. So, Light Crescent. Mm -hmm. So this beautiful scenery. Again, one of the deepest lakes in Washington state. Because of the uniqueness of this lake, the chemicals, the circumstances surrounding her death, the lake really did aid into helping her be found and having her, you know, murder solved. Um, And because it's such a beautiful area, so many people flock to this place. Mm -hmm. Millions of people have visited And they are not only enamored with the beauty of the area, they fall in love with this story of Hallie being found and um, her, you know, murder being put behind bars, even though it was a short time. So Mm -hmm. really, it's kind of like you become endeared to her. Yeah. You give her the respect she deserved. She she should have had more. She should have had a whole life of it. Mm -hmm. But while Monty will... Be forgotten and really go down his, in history as a beer truck driver slash murderer. Hallie Latham Illingworth will be ever known as the Lady in the Lake. Oh, that was so sad, but so good. And I feel like, like obviously, it's so sad that she died. But I think it's sort of beautiful that like the lake helped in uh, like aiding her murder to be found. Yeah. And it's like such a peaceful place it's like sad that she died there but it's like a very peaceful way for her to to be remembered and get justice yeah and i really like that but that lodge which i think might actually be the tavern she worked at i think it was the tavern and it's now the lodge you can stay at but don't quote me on that i'm not sure (laughs) (laughs) i just i just know that building that because i i went into that building and um we just kind of sat with the fireplace and it was so beautiful and they really lean into wanting her to be known Mm -hmm. like this is a woman that is special to us um not her murderer her murderer can 
just be forgotten. But, you know, people really, really like to hear about her and think about her. And, and it's a really peaceful area. So it's just really nice all around. And I was actually just thinking, so my current profile picture on Instagram is me at Lake Crescent. Oh, yeah. That's funny. And um, next month I will be house sitting for my cousins and I'm going to visit Lake Crescent again, just, <gasps> and then I will maybe post a couple of pictures of me there and. I want to go to Lake Crescent. With yeah, you. we should do. So remember our, we have a our podcast road trip. We'll uh-huh. start in Aberdeen. And then Chernobyl. Then Chernobyl. <laughs> or we can go, so Aberdeen, Olympic National Park, Seattle to get on a plane. We're going to Ukraine. Now, maybe not right now. Maybe well, we'll give that one some time. We'll give that one some time. Yeah. And then, uh, but still, I mean, we could just add to this road trip with wherever we're going with you. <gasps> yes, we can. Which is, I'm so excited about this. And we will find out after a short break. Do you want me to say it or do you want to say it? Um, I, I can say it. Okay, okay. <laughs> so we just wanted to say thank you uh, to all of our listeners for all the kind words and the support that you've shown us for our first episode. So we just wanted to read some of the nice comments and reviews that we got. So Drew, do you want to take turns reading some reviews? Yes, I do. Um, the first one is from Lars Unders. And, um, Lars says, I love these girls' voices. Oh, that's really nice. Not everyone has a good podcast voice. These stories are really good. Can't wait for more. And Digger and Laura said, this is going to be a fun podcast. Very engaging stories. Thank you, Digger and Laura. This one, their name is How to Get Past Steps. I don't know what that means, but I love it. <laughs> but they say, um, they say, they said, a comfy listen about obscure topics coupled with two clean and humorous hosts. Aw, that's nice. <laughs> and Jima1940 said, learned interesting facts that I hadn't thought about before. Looking forward to the next one. Thanks, Jima. Ooh, this one is from Kate the Keesling. Um, She titled her review, Mothra, is that you? That's nice. (laughs) Uh, She said, really interesting and haunting stories told with great banter and humor. I can't wait to hear your next episode. Well, I hope she likes this one. (laughs) And then lastly, S. Tinbani said, awesome start, interesting topics, and life lessons imparted. What more could a listener ask for? So thank you to everyone who listened and gave us a review. So Uh, If you want to show more support, please leave a like and review and subscribe. Yay. Thank you. Yay. Thank you. All right. All right. So for my story this week, we're kind of continuing from last week and we're going to stay in the Soviet Union, Mm -hmm. but we're going to go further back in time. Which it's funny that we both, so I was Pacific Northwest back in time. Mm Mm-hmm. Pacific Northwest, closer to now, Uh and your Soviet, closer to now, Soviet, now going back in time. We are just fans of the PNW and the Soviet Union. I, and what's not to like? It's just, it's so interesting Mm -hmm. to me learning about that time. Me and Roman are both really interested in watching things about the Soviet Union. It's, you know what it is? The Soviet Union feels like a closely guarded secret. It does. <laughs> like, because it is. It is. And it still is to this it day. It still is. It's like, oh, you're not supposed to know about that. Yeah. So I am going to be talking about 
the Dyatlov Pass <gasps> incident. Oh, I cannot wait. And I have been obsessed with this since um, Georgia covered it on My Favorite Murder. And then I was like, I oh, need same. to learn everything about this. <laughs> yes. And now I talk about it so much that my mom's like, oh, yeah, you and your Dyatlov Pass. And you're like, yes, yes, that is my personality. <laughs> okay, so we are going to start our journey on January 27th, 1959. Ooh. So nine Russian students embarked on a hike through the Ural Mountains of Serbia. All of them were students from the Ural Polytechnical Institute, and they were kind of on a break, or like some of them were on a break and some of them had graduated. And you know, uh, you might not want like personally if it was me i would not want to go on a break and go on a long hike no. through the ural mountains but at the same time they were not allowed to travel outside of the soviet union oh, at this okay. time they so were they, looking for what they could do yeah, yeah. plus yeah. you know they liked hiking and being outdoors and stuff like that i can't relate they take what they can get <laughs> <laughs> they take what they can get and so uh the group was led by one of the students igor diatlov he was an experienced hiker and had done many difficult trails and led several other groups throughout his life. And he had been hiking these hard trails since he was a child. So he was very used to this. He knows and, them. And pretty much all the other hikers were very experienced as well. So they were all ready for this. Yes. And the goal of their expedition, <laughs> expedition <laughs> was to reach Otorton Mountain. And that route was ranked as a category three, which is the most difficult. So they were like, we are going to do the hardest possible thing. Um, the most difficult as far as hiking trails? You yeah, mean? as far oh, as okay. hiking trails. Whoa. Okay. Yikes. So some of the other hikers, uh, I'll name more of them later in the story, but uh, one of them was Igor's good friend, Zina, his friend, Georgi, who can also be pronounced as Yuri, but there's also two other Yuris in this story. Okay. <laughs> so I'm just going to go with Georgi. Okay. So Yuri suffered from chronic back pain and other illnesses, and that kind of plays a part into his story and the story as a whole. Okay. So keep that in mind. So they set off on their journey by train, and on the train, the group met up with another hiker who asked to join. His name was Sasha. Sasha was much older and a more experienced hiker than the others, which, I mean, they already have a lot of experience mm. under their belt, but he was a bit older than the students. So they arrived at Vizai, which is a logging village that was built by former inmates. And most of them, uh, most of the residents were inmates and loggers. And these were inmates who had been imprisoned in the gulag. So <gasps> oh. basically... Like, the whole village was built by them, and they were forced to do this hard labor while they are in the gulag. And all of the logging that they did supplied the Soviet Union with a lot of wood. Oh, wow. Okay. So they're basically, like, powering the whole Soviet Union. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay, so before starting the actual hike, Igor met with a forest officer to show him his proposed route to have him look over it. I'm not quite sure if that was something that was required or if he just wanted to get a second opinion, but the officer basically laughed in his face <laughs> and said it was much too dangerous at that time of year, 
time of year. Yor. <laughs> oh, all these Russian names are gonna get me confused. The time of yore is very the bad. The time of yore. But Igor <laughs> decided to continue anyway. And I have a feeling since he was such a thrill seeker, he was probably kind of excited that mm. this man said that it was too dangerous. He's like, well, I'll show you. Igor is just throwing everyone's lives on the line. <laughs> and for reference, Igor is 23. So <laughs> every 23 year old has done that. We can do it. You guys. We can do it. I don't know if I was ever like that. No, I don't know. If I no. was. So the, the group hitched a ride on a logging truck, which caused Yuri enormous pain from the rough ride and he was dealing with sciatica, so it was really making his sciatica act up. There's nothing like sciatic pain. I know. I'm like, I, I commiserate with Yuri so much. Like, there's nothing like a rough ride and the cold winter weather to just completely mess up your pain. And knowing you have miles and miles of hiking ahead of you, I'd be like, just turn around. I know, for real. At this point, they met a former prisoner named Stanislav, who offers to show them the route that they're going to go on. And while going to the route, he took them across the frozen river for 15 miles. So they're walking across a frozen river, which is terrifying. Because what if it breaks underneath yeah. you? Like, at that point, you would kind of just have to turn around. I'm I like, know. hasn't anyone read Little Women? <laughs> they're like, no, we have no. We're in the Soviet Union. <laughs> we aren't allowed that. We aren't allowed that. <laughs> At this point, uh, poor Yuri's back and legs are in excruciating pain. And like you said, he realizes that he can't make this trip. So he turns around and makes his way back to the village. And this would be the last time that Yuri would see his friends alive. Yuri making the first of many great decisions in his life. I know. It, I looked and it seemed like Yuri had a nice long life. So despite his uh, chronic pain, it seemed like he had a good decision-making skills. Playing it safe. Yeah. I'm like, it's okay, buddy. You know, that's not mm -hmm. for all of us. No. So on January 29th, uh, for some reason, Igor decides to follow a path that has recently been made by the local Manzi people, which is a group that is indigenous to this area, instead of the path that he had originally planned, maybe assuming that it would be an easier route since the Manzi know the terrain better. Uh, no one really knows why Igor decided to go this way. At this point, the group is lost, and so they decide to uh, pitch their tent at Kalutsakal, which in Manzi means dead mountain. Oh, which does not bode well. You're like, I'm looking for healthy hiker mountain, please. <laughs> like, why do you call it that, you yeah. guys? Do they say why they call it that? Or no. it's just <laughs> It's just ominous. They call it dead mountain. Oh. I mean, it could mean lots of other things. That's true. But I don't know. It's just probably not the best feeling mm. knowing that it's called that. No. Back at the hiking club where their journey had started, they hadn't received any word from any of the students. And uh, before the trip started, Igor had said that he would contact them when they made it to their destination. So people were starting to get worried. You know, at first they're like, well, it might take a couple extra mm -hmm. days. And Yuri actually uh, arrived back at uh, the starting point. And he was kind of worried when he didn't see his friends too. Yeah. But then he was like, well, Igor said it might take a little bit longer than he thought. So he brushed it off. But then 
more and more time keeps going by and students are getting worried and parents are starting to say, hey, we need to go look for our children. Mm. So students, parents, law enforcement decide to go and search for the missing group. They also enlist Manzi hunters and experienced hikers to help them look for the students since they were much more familiar with the terrain. Uh, The search party then comes across a tent and the tent is partially buried in the snow and there is none of the hikers to be seen in or around the tent. When they uncover the tent, they see slash marks through the fabric and on the inside, the students' fur coats, hats, and boots are left behind, which means that they're out in the elements with none of their gear. The searchers then come across footprints, and those footprints lead them to the first body. So the first body that they found was Georgi. I have a question. Yes. Slash marks. Slash marks going in, slash marks going out. It was from the inside of the tent. Inside of the tent. Which is the weird thing, because first of all, like, why would you not just unzip the tent? Right. And, like, was it frozen shut? Mm. Or were they just so frantic about something that they slashed the they tent open? They had found their easiest way out. Right. No one knows. But it that would be a terrifying thing to see. It's like a cat in a bag. I know. <laughs> I don't know if that's worse seeing slashes from the inside or the outside. Yeah. Neither is great. Neither is good. No. I would like no slashes, please. Yes. <laughs> that's just a good life motto. Yes. Um, so the first body was Georgi, and then next to him, laying face down, is Yuri Doroshenko. Both of the corpses have no shoes and next to no clothes on, which for them, you know, they just have their underwear and some shorts and, like, a light thermal layer, which for Serbia is next to nothing. Oh my goodness. Um, and 300 yards away from those two, they find Igor partially covered in snow and clinging onto a tree and and he has he is no longer alive he is no longer alive oh no and which that is so terrifying the the visual the visual of just like a dead person clinging onto a tree and nearby they also find xena not far from igor so investigator lev ivanov is charged with finding out the cause of death of the students Igor had defensive wounds on his hand, and Georgi had a foamy gray discharge around his mouth. Mm-hmm. Georgi and Yuri both had burns on their hands and feet, which doesn't really make sense because they would have had to have actually held them in the fire a bit to get those burns. Oh. Even if, I don't know, I mean, I've never had hypothermia, so right. <laughs> I can't say, but I just imagine that even if you had hypothermia at a certain point, your brain would snap out of it and say, hey, remove your hands get from your the fire. hands out of the fire. They also tested some of the clothes of the hikers because they found a kind of purple residue on the clothes and Lev Ivanov thought it might be radiation and it turns out he was right. Oh no. The, wow. You had radi Soviet radiation. Right? That is your middle name now. Olivia Soviet radiation. In there, I love it. Um, but yes, they were radioactive, but none of the people's bodies were radioactive. Mm. So that was the weird thing. Ooh, that that is weird. So it was like they wore them just long enough, but they didn't get any radiation. I I'm not quite sure how that works. No. Some people thought that maybe 
the um, clothing that they had bought had been manufactured next to like radiation plant or they had got them secondhand and they had radiation, mm. but none of it makes a whole lot of sense. No. And then on March 5th, they found Rustum, who also has defensive wounds, and they found Kolya, Ludmila, and Alexander. They all had serious internal injuries, but worst of all, Ludmila's eyes and tongue were missing, and her ribs were crushed. Oh, it, I for, oh my goodness, I forgot I about know, that. Oh, I forgot about Where it did, too. Okay, did it look like it had been bitten? Her tongue had been bitten off or cut out? Do we know? They didn't say. Oh. And any of the things I researched, I couldn't see if it was cut or if it had bitten. Some people thought it might be scavengers, but then my thought is mm-hmm. why wouldn't anyone else have, have been disrupted? Missing parts. Especially since she was so close to Kolya and Alexander. Right. Um, and then some people thought that she might have been alive when her tongue was taken out because she had um, blood pooling in her stomach. Oof. But it also might have been from her other internal injuries. Right. So. And, and you said her rubs. Her rubs. <laughs> her ribs were crushed. Oh, sorry. Her ribs were crushed. Yes. <laughs> but there were no rocks nearby mm. that uh, could have fallen on them because that was an initial thought that maybe some rocks could have crushed them. But there right. was none nearby. And there was nothing near them that suggested that there had been blunt force trauma, but clearly there was. Yeah. And she was the only one with rib injury. She was the only one with rib injury. Um, a couple others had head injuries. Mm. And uh, like the last four all had internal injuries of okay. some sort. Oof. So that's another weird thing. It's like each grouping of people had different injuries and causes of death, yeah. seemingly. Um, so what is the cause of all these strange deaths? The official story from the investigation was due to high winds and hypothermia, but many people have other theories that could be plausible. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to go through some of the most popular theories and then breeze by some of the other ones because there's just so many. There's so many. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so one of the possibilities is murder. Uh, I like that that's number one. Number one, murder. I know. Yes, actually, that could be a very, very real. But the question is, who murdered them? Right. So Yuri appeared to have been moved post-mortem uh, because he had blood pooling um, in his, I forget if it was like his back, but he was laying face down, oh, like someone had turned him over. Right. So, so he had rig- been past rigor. Mm-hmm. Okay. But I was wondering, maybe one of his friends had moved him post mortem if they weren't dead yet. Mm. Uh, but some people believe that the whole scene was staged. The question is, by who? Answers vary between the Manzi, the CIA, and the KGB. Uh, I don't trust the KGB. I mean, <laughs> I don't trust the CIA. I don't. I, you know, I was like, I was like, wait a minute. The Manzi, they seem cool. I don't yeah. know them very well. Yeah, the Manzi. Uh, the theory about them is that uh, when they were on Kolitsakal, that the Dead Mountain, the Dead Mountain, that that was supposedly sacred to the Manzi. Mm-hmm. But uh, a lot of people said, no, that's actually not true. It's not sacred to the Manzi. But then others said, actually, yes, it is part of 
their sacred place. So it was kind of conflicting mm. narratives of whether or not it was sacred to the Manzi. But either way, I don't know how you feel, but I personally don't think they would have just killed that whole group of people. And then why no. would they have helped look for them? Yeah. And I don't think... It, I mean, so many times the narrative is, oh, let's blame the indigenous people. I know. Which is not cool. It, but why would they want to murder young people? It doesn't, it make, doesn't any make any sense. sense. I know. And especially since they, they helped them yes. several times. Yeah, And then the CIA and the KGB. So there was speculation that one of the hikers was either a KGB spy that had been murdered by the CIA or conversely a defector that had been caught by the KGB and that the rest of the students were just collateral, which Mm. I can see to some extent, especially with the political tensions going on at the time. But I just think it's, it's a weird timing. They're like, you know what? We're going to get this guy. Let's do it while he's hiking with his friends. Yeah. It's just like, I feel like they have their resources and they could just get him at any while time. While he's at home, while her. he's sleeping. Yeah. <laughs> or, yeah, or her. Yeah. And they're like, you know what? Now's dead, the time. Now's the time. A dead mountain. <laughs> um, and one of the other theories, which I actually think this seems somewhat plausible. So, Soviet nuclear testing. Hikers' injuries could be explained by some sort of explosive blast. It could also explain the radiation on their clothing. A picture that one of the hikers took uh, on their camera before they died shows a bright glowing light in the sky, and pilots later confirmed that they were practicing parachute mine drops around this time, although officials later denied it. Oh, well, yes. Which I'm like, well, of course they would deny yeah. that. <laughs> but, I mean, it does seem plausible. You know, it's a remote location. Mm-hmm. It sounds like not a lot of people were hiking around that area other than the Manzi people. Because people are not going to be insane hikers like these kids. And let's be honest, they probably aren't overly worried about the indigenous people. And they're like, sure, we'll just practice our mind dropping right Right. over this mountain. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's so true. Yeah. But I think with some of the injuries, uh, it does make sense. Mm -hmm. But I'm still not entirely convinced. Right. Uh, And another one... This one is very interesting to me. Uh, a Caraman Vortex Street and Infrasound. So a Caraman uh, Vortex is a pattern of swirling vortices known as vortex shedding. This can also lead to infrasound, which is a frequency so low that it can't be heard by humans, but they can be felt and can cause fear and anxiety. I've heard of this before. Right. I think it's so fascinating. It's fascinating. It's like a sound that makes you sick. Yeah. It kind of makes you crazy. Yeah. Which I think would explain some of the weird behavior that they were exhibiting. Like if you Mm -hmm. just get this weird um, kind of paranoid feeling, maybe you slash open your tent and run outside with not enough clothes on. If you're feeling paranoid, check yourself. Are you okay? <laughs> right. <laughs> but that still doesn't really convince me with the burns on two of the hikers mm. and then the blunt force trauma. I guess if you were feeling unwell and you were losing your, like, any kind of, like, um, I don't know, sanity that you mm-hmm. had due to a sound, I guess, so, I mean, people's brains react differently to certain things. Maybe a couple of them are like, my hand's in the fire. And the other one's like, 
biting my tongue, which just sounds terrible, but... But then there would be part of her tongue left. That's true. Unless maybe a little scavenger. Like, mate, what if, you know, a squirrel okay. came along? No. <laughs> I don't know. It's like, what a squirrel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. No, that is really crazy to think about. And it's actually really creepy. I know. I actually want to do more research about infrasound. Yes, very much so. And then some of the other... Uh, theories are ufos naturally natural i mean there's always going to be ufos part of it was because of uh like that picture of the ball of light which Mm. could be interpreted as many different things um but a couple of the searchers that were at the base camp um when they were looking for the hikers one of them reported also seeing a ball of light in the sky and at first he thought it was the moon, oh. but then it gradually started getting closer and it appeared to be blinking. He's like, and when it hits your eye, <laughs> like a big pizza pie. He's like, is, is that a more? He's like, no, it's actually a UFO. He's like, I'm actually Italian. I'm yeah. not a uh, Soviet. Oh my goodness. But uh, it's so scary. I guess the Soviet Union had had other UFO sightings, but I feel like that's really any place you're going to have UFO sightings. Yeah. And uh, when they reported it, they classified it and Mm -hmm. closed it. But again, the Soviet Union, I feel like they're going to classify anything. They classify and close everything. They don't want people to know anything. No. (laughs) And then, of course, we have the Yeti or Bigfoot. Oh, that's my favorite (laughs) theory so far. I I like to think of the Yeti as Bigfoot's like fun loving cousin i just feel like he is his cozy cousin yeah like he likes doing cozy winter cabin things and then bigfoot is like i just want to live in the woods like just let me live i guess probably like probably our our yeti visions are um aided by the matterhorn right at disneyland Uh and monsters and monsters inc yeah which is just beautiful and white and Running free. I love the thought of any Yeti involvement, but I don't like to think of the Yeti as a violent no. creature. <sighs> so. I like to think of him as coming across the scene and being like, how do I help them? But then he hears humans coming and yeah. he's like, I must flee. Or he like tries to help them and he's just really bad at it. Oh. <laughs> like any help I do. <laughs> Is this helping? You're like, oh, no, I... I got your tongue. I got your tongue. Oh, no. Oh, oh I'm sorry. I'm so awful. sorry. Okay. So, however, after many years, the mystery might finally be solved, which I was oh my. disappointed and excited at the same time mm. when I was doing my research because you and I, we just, we love a mystery, yes. but also I want to know what happened to them. Yes. And I like when things are also easily explained by science. I think it's really cool. So at first, uh, I was unsure when I saw that the official story was about being like an avalanche or uh, intense winds or something like that. But in 2015, the committee of the Russian Federation started to research this mystery again, and they determined that it was an avalanche. uh, But some people were still skeptical about it. And one of my resources... Uh, naturejournal.com actually kind of did their own experiment but with models oh and uh 
with formulas and computer programming and all sorts of stuff I don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> but I think they sum up pretty perfectly how this could create uh, the worst perfect circumstances for an avalanche. Ooh. So, one, the location of the tent under a shoulder in a steep slope to protect them from the wind. So where they had pitched their tent was kind of in this sloped area, which was initially to protect them from the the elements. icy cold right. winds. Okay, that makes so sense. So that is one of the things that leads to this going wrong. That, But just you describing that alone, it sounds like, that sounds like a prime location for just the worst Right. You're in a hole, things are going to fall on you. Things are going to fall on you, or you're going to be trapped there. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the second thing, a buried, weak snow layer parallel to the steep terrain, which resulted in a upward thinning snow slab. So I, it took me a few times to understand this when I was reading it. Is it like um, a snow slab? Is that kind of like a, uh, like a base layer of snow? Yeah. Okay. So basically... They were on this area which had become weakened mm. by them being there. And then the snow slab is basically the piece of snow that would be a part of the avalanche. Okay. Uh, the third thing, the cut in the snow slab made by the group to install the tent. So this snow slab, they're disrupting the structure of this, which I'm sure they didn't know that it could lead to anything bad, but right. it sounds like a bad idea when you say it out loud. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I wouldn't know if I was out there. I'd be like, this is a great place for a tent. <laughs> and the fourth thing, oh my gosh, I can't talk today. The fourth thing. <laughs> the fourth thing. <laughs> uh, strong catabotic winds, which are hurricane force winds <sighs> that led to progressive accumulation. Avalanche simulations done by this journal have shown that even a small snow slab could result in thorax and skull injuries, which is what some of the students had. Yeah. So maybe the mystery is solved after all this time. I don't know. What do you think? They were like, we um, think it's an avalanche and everyone's like, nice try, KGB. And they're like, actually, no, it was an avalanche. And then scientists are like, actually, we did some tests and that might actually be a right. thing. And the KGB is like, oh, wow, we guessed it right. They were like, oh, good job, guy that wrote that uh, that report that guessed avalanche. I'm still curious, um, though, because, I mean, I guess most of them were buried underneath the snow. And yeah, it would explain, that's true. like, why Igor was clutching onto the tree. Yeah. And I guess probably the force of the snow could cause Lumila to bite down on her tongue. Oh, yeah. I'm st- I still don't really understand how the eyeballs work. But no. maybe that was a scavenger. Yeah, that's true. Ooh, that yeah, the idea of that is not good. It's not. It's really not. <laughs> no. But I guess when you think about hurricane force winds mixing with ice. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just shards of glass coming at you. That's true. And there's branches around. Brand, yeah. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I mean, we've been in a snowstorm. We live in the Pacific Northwest. We know what cold, windy ice feels like. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't even imagine if it was like 100 miles an hour. I've also had shards of glass coming at me. And <laughs> oh, yeah. it is not pleasant. And that you're, was not 100 like, miles an hour. You're like, shout out to my car accident. Woo! Um, wow. Yeah, this one has always fascinated me. Mm-hmm. It can go in so many different directions. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, we love a little Yeti action. We do. But we love him as being fun-loving and sweet. I know. I want my Yeti to be a Disney Yeti. I want my Yeti to be a good Yeti. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. That could be a book. Yeah. A good Yeti. The good Yeti. That was really good. That Every time I hear about it, the more I'm like, yes, this story is just... Stories like this are what make mystery lovers just like... Yes, I want to hear mm-hmm. about this, but I want to know the answer so bad. Yeah. Also, I realized I forgot to do my sources at the top. So oh, I'll okay. do that now. I'm not even sure. So as our second episode, the first one we did, you did, see, I forgot last time with COVID brain. Should we do them at the beginning or the end? Either I, way. Either way is fine. It's fine. As long as we're putting them out there because I did not come up with any of my information on my own. Me either. Um, so my sources, uh, of course, Wikipedia, our best friend, which honestly was mostly for me trying to figure out what everyone's names were, Oh yeah, which was really helpful. Also, we should give money to Wikipedia. We should. <laughs> should. They have helped us so We're much. We're going to be using them a lot. Yes. Uh, Dyatlovpass.com, history.co.uk, uh, naturejournal.com, which I would go and look at uh, their article about them possibly solving the Dyatlov Pass because they have a lot of really interesting graphs and formulas and simulations that explain in way better detail than I could. And it was a really interesting read. So I would look at that. That was naturejournal.com? Yes. Okay. And then lastly, this is going to sound weird, but Uh Conspiracy Theories Podcast by Parcast. Oh. And I really like their podcast because they talk about mysterious events like this. They talk about the facts about what happened and then what the possible conspiracies around it are. But then they kind of rank the likelihood. I like that. Yeah. So shout out to Conspiracy Theories because I love that podcast. Shout out to them. Yeah. I love a good podcast that that gives multiple answers Mm -hmm. because it's probably any of those or maybe none of those, but probably one of those. Yeah. And I am also someone who enjoys thinking about conspiracy theories but then i'm like we need to think about the most logical yeah explanation yeah if anyone hears something in the background my husband is also yeah. talking right now <laughs> like that is roman olivia's husband slash uh podcast producer slash editor <laughs> slash editor he has a free pass to do whatever he wants because he's our superhero for this podcast it's true yeah also this is his house too yeah <laughs> i'm i'm a guest here I have like some really random hyperfixations. So the other day I decided that what I would really like is to have, you know how everyone's grandma kind of always had those like glass candy dishes. Yes. I've decided that I want to have a glass candy dish in my house for when people come over and I am fully going to have like the grandma hard candy too. Good. Because Everyone wants, everyone feels a little bit comforted by a grandma hard candy. It's true. And so I've been looking for stuff like that on Etsy mm-hmm. and I've just been looking for more unique pieces to have in my house because I kind of have my baseline decoration and now I want to add like a little bit of flair. Yes. And I have become so obsessed with depression era glassware. Oh. Because there's this, so many beautiful like blush pink glassware oh that sounds nice and then uh milk glass 
which is like it just literally looks like a creamy glass oh, of milk. That like that's the color. Beautiful. But I just want all of the and depression era, mm-hmm. meaning that it's glassware that knows how to turn few ingredients into a cake. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's take take this can of Coke and this can of whatever. I'm like, you know what? We are basically going into another Great Depression. Oh yeah. So I might as well get in live it, it up with the Great Depression vibe. Get in with the vibe. I'm gonna start making um flower sack dresses. <laughs> you know what? They knew what they were doing. They did. I remember reading about flower sack dresses and the fact that flower sack company, flower sack companies, <laughs> flower <laughs> companies, would started making cute flower sacks because they knew that moms were using the material for dresses for little girls and I'm like you know it's little stories like that where you're like that there is some good in the world I'm like more of that companies like try being nice again (laughs) unlike flower sacks now where it's like it's paper and it's like lol if you even try to move me I'm covering everything with flour (laughs) I know you know what I feel like the next thing to do is those giant rice bags Oh, yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Rice bag dresses. Yes. You heard it here first. <laughs> I'll make a rice bag dress for Henry. Please do. <laughs> yeah. I. That's my cat. That's my cat. Yeah. And I have a cat named Greg and he would punch me in the face for making him a rice bag dress. Yeah. Henry would just like squirm until he got yeah. out, you know. Greg and Henry being the podcast mascots, they could not be more different in their personalities, <laughs> so but true. they are both really good boys. They are good boys. And we'll have to also post pictures of them sometime. Yeah. When, when Henry's less shy, he'll probably come out and meow at the microphone. I hope so. Yeah. Well, until next time, we should be curious and be odd and um just remember that we're your two little crow friends bringing you little treasures be wary of avalanches and be wary of beer truck drivers that probably drink and drive and be wary of the soviet union always (laughs) never trust the kgb (laughs) good night good night (laughs)